It's worth keeping in mind um, that the way that we've gone through the Bible from Genesis all the way up to this point has been basically one unbroken narrative. In fact, most of the books, uh, Genesis all the way through Joshua, starting with Exodus, um, they all open with the little word and. It, that's how continuous the first six books are. But even when you get into um, Judges and then First and Second Samuel uh, and now First and Second Kings, uh, the story moves along as a single story. And that's very apparent here as we open up First Kings because as you'll notice, um, this isn't just the beginning of Solomon's reign, it's very clearly the end of David's. And so we pick up here in verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Now the word there for clothes is probably more blankets, which makes a lot more sense because uh, it makes it sound like he's lost his mind and he's running around naked. Um, but the idea here is even when he's extra bundled up, he can't generate the heat he needs to be comfortable. Verse 2, therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that the lord the king might be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shum, uh, Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, this practice sounds completely abnormal to us today, but it's worth remembering that we're in a time of modern history. This is before there are hot water bottles or electric blankets or anything like that, and there are at least a few other historical accounts of similar practices of basically preserving heat through body heat. Now, some suggest that something more is going on here, um, that basically they are giving a test to David to see if he is still worthy of ruling. In other words, if he's still virile enough to rule, and if he can't uh, basically get out of bed for a beautiful woman, then clearly there's something wrong with him. Uh, honestly, the idea seems to be suggested here that this is intentionally a non-sexual relationship, not that it was set up to be such. Uh, the woman here who's brought in as a young woman specifically to tend for David um, and to provide a bit of body warmth. Uh, the reason we're told about her isn't actually about David's condition, but to set us up for the story that follows, which is often the case. So, verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, because it's hard to keep track, it's worth reminding us here that Adonijah is not just the son of Haggith, but the son of David, okay? This is one of David's sons who sees his father in his old age, and he says, now, here's the opportunity I've been waiting for. He's too weak to stop me. He never leaves his bedroom. He won't see it coming. I'm just going to insert myself as king. It continues here. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So already we kind of get a taste of what his plan is. His plan is to behave like a king until it's just accepted and received. Uh, in other words, he just wants to run a, um, a publicity campaign. And so he sets up, just as any king in the uh, ancient Near East would have, all of these runners to run before him and chariots, uh, which is something unique to kings. 
And then notice verse 6, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Okay. Now, it may be that's because David is unaware of what's going on. There's good reason, we'll see, to believe that's the case. But it would also completely make sense that David allows his son to behave in this way. Whether he knows the intentions or not, he allows him to take the chariots and allows him to take the runners because David is honestly, frankly, not a very good father. Uh, ever, since, uh, ever since his sin with Bathsheba, every time we see him engaging with his children, he's reluctant to do what needs to be done, and it leads to much in the way of uh, interpersonal and even international uh, conflict. Um, but nonetheless, there's no interruption. On top of that, he was also, it says here in verse 6, very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Okay, so Absalom is dead. And so in terms of order of children, he's in line for the throne. And it mentions handsome here, just like it did for Saul, just like it did for Absalom, because that's a popular trait for a ruler, okay? So to the people, he looks like a good candidate. He walks the walk, which means he doesn't walk at all. He rides in a chariot. Uh, and so this is what he's going with. And then what he does is he starts to gather some supporters. And so, verse 7, he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. Okay, remember, Joab is one of David's primary generals. Abiathar is one of his primary priests. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. Okay, so he gets them on their side, David's military leader and his religious leader supporting this new rule. Now, we should pause here and just recognize that we're moving into something new. How was it that Saul and David became king? By the anointing of a prophet, right? By a recognition by God's representative, this one shall be king. Now, that's not necessarily required from here on out because what does God promise David? that it's going to be his sons in succession who will rule after him, okay? But it does put us in this interim period where it's, it's worth asking exactly how this should have happened. Um, but what Abishai does, um, excuse me, what Adonijah does uh, is apart from King David entirely, uh, and it's, it's basically like squatters' rights to the throne. That's kind of how it works here. Now, notice who he doesn't enlist or who doesn't join in on this, verse 8. But Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now, not only is that a lot of significant people, um, but there's also some especially significant ones. Nathan is the court prophet, right? He's the one who confronted David about Bathsheba. Uh, Zadok is uh, the priest who is all set up to replace Abiathar. Because remember, Abiathar is a descendant of Eli. And it was told of Eli that his family would be removed from the lineage of high priest. Okay? This is where that goes down. Okay? But we see this split here. And so Zadok... Uh, and his family stand against here. Uh, and then it's also uh, worth recognizing uh, Benaniah. That's another one of David's generals. Uh, and then Shimei. Shimei is, Shimei is the one who, when Absalom was taking over, was cursing David and throwing rocks at him. Okay? Not, a, not a usual person to side against a throne takeover. But there you have it. He's not involved. Okay. Uh, so notice, here's the next thing that happens, okay? 
now we should recognize what happens in verse 9 is probably not a coronation feast. It's more like a supporter's feast, you know, $500 a plate. Uh, it's, it's the pre-function of the coronation. They're celebrating in advance because it's going to go off beautifully. And so, verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle, uh, cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. Now, it's worth mentioning here that Enrogel is right outside of the city of David, uh, just, just beyond the Mount of Olives. And so it's not really that far away, but it is conveniently outside the palace, okay, away from, away from the city proper. And so they also invite all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, his tribe, but... He did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. Now, we already know that these are people who don't stand with him, but it also speaks to probably more than that, okay? Because you need to remember that the Bible contains a culture of hospitality. And so what can he not do after inviting these men to dinner? Take the throne and put them to death, okay? And so keeping them off the list is, is a clear uh, signal of what's going to happen next. These people, uh, because they didn't stand with him, are not just uninvited to the party or even uninvited to uh, his leadership, they are uninvited to live under his uh, dominion, okay? Uh, and then notice here we get the first reference to Solomon. Now, Solomon is the second son of Bathsheba. Remember, the first baby dies. Solomon is the one that is born after that. He is younger than Adonijah, um, but the reference here sets us up for what happens next. So, verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Notice it's more than just Solomon's rule that's at stake here. It's also his life as well as, uh, as, well as her life because they would become a threat to the lineage uh, of Adonijah. And so Nathan comes and he talks with her. And then notice his advice, verse 13. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Now this is actually news to us as readers. We aren't aware that David has made such a promise until this point. But we see why that's the case, right? Because it builds suspense. Suddenly, we see Adonijah's uh, attempt in a completely different light. Now we know for sure it's not just against the wishes of David, but his vow, his promises as well. And so Bathsheba has to take David, her husband, to task over this and hold him to his word. She's to continue, why then is Adonijah king? Then, he says, while you're still speaking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words." So Bathsheba went into the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Now why is that there? It's to remind us that there is an eyewitness to these conversations who doesn't have a vested interest in what's going on. Right? I told you that the Shunammite had an important part to play in the story. She'll have a second part to play in a second. But first, she's here for this conversation, and so she knows 
that it's, uh, that it's on the up and up, right? She can be an eyewitness that this is not plotting, um, but, but an eyewitness to the actual conversation. And so here it is, verse 17. Uh, sorry, verse 16 is important too. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, what do you desire? And she said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, did not know it. Now notice how intentional that language is there. She doesn't say he's claiming to be king. She says he is king even though you, the king, did not know of it. Uh, and she continues. Um, thank you. He has sacrificed oxen fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Notice that she doesn't just remind David of his vow, but also reminds him here of his role as king. The idea here is not that the crowds of Israel are necessarily going, I wonder what David thinks of this. They're not all waiting for an answer, but it's his decision to make. And so if he speaks, they will hear. All eyes are on David. And so verse 21, otherwise it will come to pass when my Lord the King sleeps with his fathers when you die, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders and put to death. Verse 22, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came before the king, he bowed before the king and with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me? For he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they're eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live the king, Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your ser servant Solomon, he is not invited. Notice Bathsheba focuses on who's in attendance, but Nathan here focuses on who's not. What they're doing is drawing the sides for David to know where people stand. And so he lays, they lay this out. And then he asks humbly, verse 27, Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on your throne of my lord the king after him? In other words, he says, Have you done all this without telling me? Okay. And so Bathsheba says, You've gone against what you told me. And Nathan says, have you done this? Have you been the instigator here without letting even me know? Right. And so by kind of this pincer attack, they get David really thinking about what's going on. In verse 28, David, King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord, King David, live forever. Now, I've always thought there's something so poignant about statements like that. Here's David on his deathbed. 
but the honorable statement is, may the Lord King David live forever. But the recognition here, of course, is that he's done the right and honorable thing in that he's going to keep his word. And so this is what he does, verse 32. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. Now, why does he call them? Because he knows where they stand, right? He knows that none of them stand with Adonijah. So they came before the king, verse 33, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Now this process makes a lot more sense for anointing a new king. Notice the prophet is in in attendance. The priest is there. They go to Gihon and they anoint him just as Saul was anointed, just as uh, David was anointed. And it's not a bunch of Adonijah's buddies saying, long live the king. It's those who are representing David who do so. Verse 35, you shall then come up after him, and he shall come up and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Perethites, remember those are David's personal guards that he probably gathered up while he was among the Philistines, uh, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Now, a donkey might seem a strange mount for a king, but in those days, white she-asses, white donkeys, uh, were reserved for royalty in times of peace. And so a king may ride a horse in times of war, but when it was a mission of peace, he came on a donkey, which helps us to make sense of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey and the promise that he would come because he was coming on a mission of peace. But remember, even as he's coming, he weeps and he says, Jerusalem, how often I've sought to gather you like a hen does its chicks, but you were unwilling. And because you did not know the day of your visitation, a day of peace, hard times are coming, right? In contrast with that, when we get to Jesus in the book of Revelation returning, he doesn't return on a white donkey, but on a right white horse, right? Uh, Because he's coming there to bring about judgment, okay? And so here, uh, here is David's donkey ridden by David's son Solomon, anointed by David's priests at the word of David's prophet, Okay, it's all set up here. And then notice how people respond to it. Verse 39, there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Uh, Now, side note here, what tent? This is the tabernacle, okay? We were told earlier that the ark was moved to Jerusalem under great fanfare, but the tabernacle is still set up at Gihon um, after it's ransacked and the ark is stolen from Shiloh. It's relocated to Gihon, and so they're going here and doing it where the priest's center uh, is uh, before the tabernacle, and we'll see Gihon show up again a few times tonight. And then notice how the people respond, verse 40. All the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. 
And so they begin to celebrate the coronation of this new King Solomon. And remember here, this is happening coinciding with this feast that Adonijah is having. And so we jump perspective-wise back to there, verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. And Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, and the Perethites. And he's had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. So they've gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Okay, And so notice here it's too late. It's a loss of support. Uh, it is David's clear intentions. And all of Adonijah's dreams come crashing down. He continues here, verse 46, Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on his bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Okay. Now, what we have here is not necessarily David surrendering his crown, but installing a co-regency, which is something we see a lot in Egypt and, uh, and Mesopotamia and a few of the other uh, cultures around Israel at this time. Okay, it's, it's for a clean handoff of the crown. And so David is still crowned king, but he's co-leading with David. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing this so much is because if you ever try and take the math on how long particular kings in the Bible reigned to task, if you're that type of nerd, if you run the numbers, they won't always make sense. What we read in Chronicles and what we read in Kings won't always make sense, but understanding this co-regency principle clears almost all of that up. Because sometimes the author of Chronicles starts from the day of the coronation, but the author of Kings often starts from counting from the day of their official reign. Okay? We actually see the same thing with the kings of, um, of Babylon in the book of Daniel. It's hard to keep track of what's going on because of this co-regency principle. Okay? Um, but that's what's happening here. And so... Uh, David celebrates this coronation even from his bedroom. And so here, uh, verse 49, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way, quietly, I imagine. Verse 50, Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now this is a practice that is laid out back in the law, that somebody who is seeking to save themselves from being killed can throw themselves on the horns of the altar. Remember, the bronze altar in the temple has these horns that come up from it, which were probably to tie the living sacrifices to it before they were put to death. Okay? Uh, and so it's kind of like in, in medieval times when people would uh, call to a church building and, and cry out sanctuary, seeking refuge, right? And so he throws himself here, uh, verse 
51, it was told of Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears the king Solomon, for behold, he's laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let king Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Now, this is a relatively wise thing for Solomon to say. He doesn't give him, you know, a blank check. Live however you want. Your life will be protected. He says, you will not die for this. It'll be your future behavior that's going to determine consequence. He knows that if Adonijah was sneaky enough to try and take the throne while David wasn't looking, that he would be sneaky enough to try and take the throne while Solomon's not looking. In fact, we'll see that that's an amazing insight into Adonijah's character. And so, verse 53, King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said, go to your house. Now, when we contrast that with a few other places where similar things happen, there is a phrase that's missing, go to your house in peace, okay? He just says, go home, okay? Not everything is good here, uh, but for now, there's a ceasefire. Chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and commandments and his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn. This is a pretty standard handing over of the reins. We see similar statements that Abraham makes to Isaac. We see similar statements that Moses makes to Joshua. And basically he says the secret of success as a leader of Israel is to commit yourself to keep the covenant. And then you will prosper. He continues here, he says... uh, Verse 3, in the charge of the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so he reminds him here of the promise of a continual rule if the kings continue to follow the covenant. So first he gives very uh, encouraging and beautiful spiritual advice, and then he gives some hard practical advice. Verse 5, moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, who he killed. Okay, just to remind you of the stories there, Abner had killed Joab's younger brother, okay? Not because he wanted to, but because his younger brother wouldn't give up the chase. And so Abner warns him to back off, to fight some of the other men, and eventually he refuses, and so, um, so Abner takes his life. It's years later... After Abner sides with Ishbosheth, this Saulide dynasty, as his general of his army, okay, and that all falls apart, and then Abner is given full, uh, full freedom from David. David promises not to harm him, but Abner hears that he's in the city and he kills him. And like we talked about, what makes that significantly horrible is that Abner kills or excuse me, Joab kills Abner in a city of refuge. 
Okay, the place where people who had not killed with intention, not with um, you know, what we call in cold blood, not with plotting, where they could flee from the avenger of blood. And so he's in one of the cities of refuge when Joab takes his life, making his, uh, his killing of Abner not just a personal offense against the wishes of the king, uh, but also double heinous. And then there's Amasa. Um, Amasa is the general who takes Joab's job because he's a, uh, you know, a loaded gun that David can't trust. And so when Amasa is brought in from the Benjamite army, he takes Joab's place. And when he goes after uh, this other Benjamite revolutionary, he takes too much time. And so Joab just kills him. Okay. So it's these two people that are cited. And he says, because of that, you need, uh, he says here, uh, Let's pick up again in verse 5, halfway through. Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting his blood of war on the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Act, he says, therefore, according to your wisdom, but, not, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So notice he gives two pieces of advice here. One is don't let him live. And two is be wise about it, okay? Now, now we're getting into some of the tension of the book, and I'm not going to resolve it for you because I haven't come to a conclusion myself. We need to decide if, if the behavior here is justified and right, uh, and so the wisdom that we see Solomon using here is shrewd and maybe even related to the wisdom we're going to read about later, or if we should follow instead the contrast that James makes between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. In other words, when Solomon prays to God and says, I'm like a child and I don't know which way to go, is he confessing mistakes in the past that include what we're about to read? Or is he, he broadly talking about humility and we're already seeing his wisdom play out here? It's a hard case to make and we'll look at it as we go along here. But David's advice is be smart about it, but don't let him live. Now, whatever you decide with Solomon, we need to recognize what this says about David. That once again in his old age, because of particular loyalties he has, he doesn't take care of things. Okay? Joab has killed three people against the king's wishes. Absalom, and that one's at least understandable because Absalom was in revolt against his father, but what was David's wish? Do not hurt the young man Absalom, and yet Joab doesn't keep that. And then these two, he does not in times of war, but in times of peace. In fact, one of them is on his side. It's friendly fire, okay? Uh, and so the second thing he says, in contrast, verse 7, deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. Okay. Barzillai is the one who, when uh, David fled from Absalom, housed him and fed him and all of his troops. And so when David gets back after Absalom is dead and he's heading back to Jerusalem, he says, Barzillai, why don't you come home and live at my palace the rest of your days? And he says, I'm an old man. I'd rather die at home. And he says, but have mercy on my sons. And so now David extends their residency at the palace and they're eating from David's table to his sons. And he says, continue to reward them because they were good to me. He says, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Basharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. 
Okay, so remember, Shimei is the one who, when Absalom takes over, follows David, cursing him, throwing rocks on him. But it's worth remembering that at the same time that David is returning to Jerusalem and he makes such a great offer to Barzillai, he also absolves Shimei. Shimei meets him at the river and says, oh, I really messed this up. Please have mercy on me. And he says, I will not kill you. But now that he's fulfilled those words, his advice is, as soon as I'm dead, take his life. Okay. Um, but notice, he says, uh, the Benjamite from Burham who cursed me with a grievous curse on that day when I went to Mahanaim, but when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, you will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with his blood to Sheol. Okay, and so two, he says, you need to get rid of. And remember here, Shimei has not shown himself faithful to David's wishes. There's no reason to believe that he'd be faithful to Solomon. Joab, like I said, is, is not faithful to anybody. And so in terms of just remove this from the Bible and talk about just cold politics, this makes a lot of sense. He basically says, watch out for my enemies and reward my friends because they will be your friends and your enemies respectively, okay? But we still have to ask here, is this, is this the worst we know about David or is this understandable and justifiable? And like I said, at the very least, these are things that David should have dealt with, okay? And so he's passing on his problems to his children. We're already off course in that way, but we need a little bit more information before we make our decision. Verse 10, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now I want you to notice the order there because it's consistent in the Old Testament. First David slept with his fathers and then he's buried. The reason I say that is because some people say this idea of slept with the fathers doesn't speak of any sort of afterlife but just means he was buried in the family tomb. But consistently throughout Genesis and here in Kings, it's sleep with the fathers when they die, and then their body is buried in the family tomb, okay? And so when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and he talks about this place, Abraham's bosom, where people are, he's not coming from a new understanding of an afterlife, but drawing from one we find throughout the scriptures, okay? And we just see evidence of that here. Verse 11, the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and the kingdom was firmly established. Now pause, why do we call this book the book of kings? Because Solomon is not the last rule we're going to cover. There's going to be a whole dynasty of kings from the Davidic line. And then because of some missteps of Solomon, the ten tribes of Israel are going to have their own dynasties, plural, uh, mostly through assassination. Uh, there will be many kings in this book, but you should get used to seeing this transition statement. One dies, his life is assessed, and then we're told who rules next. Okay? This is a book of transition. Verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and, said, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers for it was, uh, for it was his from the Lord. Now notice how mixed the language is there. In one sense, he recognizes 
Solomon's reign and says that it's God done, but it's hard not to hear a little bit of bitterness in his voice. He doesn't just say, you know, I wanted to be king. He says, you know, I was king and all of Israel was happy with it, right? Notice what his request is. He says, verse 16, now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. That's the second thing that should make him question here. It's not him who's going to ask Solomon, is it? It's Solomon's mom that he asks to ask Solomon, okay? Why? Because she'll carry more weight. Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to the king Solomon to speak on his behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Now notice there, that's a position of respect and even authority, okay? She has a say in Solomon's rule. Uh, Adonijah was right. She's not going to be refused by Solomon, and that's not just because he's you know, a mommy's boy, it's because she has a significant role. And we'll see this role of queen mother for better or for worse throughout the book of kings and other rules and reigns. And so he respects her. He sits her on her right hand, the place of honor. Verse 20, she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. And King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask? Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he's my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Okay, notice we go from zero to 50 really quickly here. He escalates and he gets very angry and he goes, Why don't you just ask for my throne? What's the big deal? We need to remember that, uh, that Abishag's role, even if it was non-sexual in David's old age, would have been as a concubine. In fact, that's the label that's used for it, okay? See, uh, Adonijah is still plotting. His plot is to validate his rule by having his father's concubine. We saw Absalom do the same thing. Remember, on the roof of the palace in the light of day so all of Israel sees he goes into his father's concubines it sends a message it says I am now the king they have been handed on to me in fact if you go all the way back we even find out that Saul's concubines are passed on to David okay uh, now at the very least this is a thinly veiled plot like he doesn't even paint it as a love story he comes not to Solomon but to uh, Bathsheba, and I would suggest that Bathsheba hasn't had the wool pull pulled over her eyes. She just realizes that this is a bad plot, and she just lets it take, her cor take its course. She doesn't have to go, I'm not going to do that. Are you crazy? She goes, you asked for it, right? Remember, remember what Solomon promised to Adonijah? If you do good, you will live. Remember, he wanted to know that his intentions were not to be a problem. Now they clearly are, and so Solomon takes uh, action. Uh, verse 23, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he has promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. 
So King Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. And so here we get, again, that, that tension of understanding uh, Solomon's rule. And there's a reason why we can be happy with this tension, okay? Because when we get to the summary statement about Solomon's life, it's not all good, okay? David was a man after God's own heart, and even his rule isn't all good, but Solomon is going to make a mess of things, Okay. The question is, are the seeds of that mess existing now, or are they things that only come out in his old age? Okay. And once again, the question is here, is he doing, dealing shrewdly but not godly, or because he showed mercy and that mercy was taken advantage of, is this totally just and right? The commentator, the narrator, doesn't tell us. Okay. So we'll let that tension lie. Let's continue here. Now he realizes that the threat to his rule is bigger, and so he takes care of those who were in support of Adonijah, verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king, he said, go to Ananoth to your estate, for you deserve death, but I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. He says, you've been loyal to my father even though you haven't been loyal to me. I'm not going to take your life, but you are no longer my priest. Go home. Verse 27, so Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And so Abiathar is the last of Eli's line who operates as high priest, and then they're set aside. Then, verse 28, when news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord, and he caught hold of the horns of the altar. Okay, so Joab here sees the writing on the wall. Adonijah is dead. Abiathar is dismissed. He knows what comes next. And so like Adonijah, he flees to the altar and he takes hold of the horns of the altar, but it does not go the same way. Verse 29, when it was told King Solomon, Joab is fled to the tent of the Lord and behold, he's besides the altar. Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. Okay, no sanctuary here. Why? Because sanctuary were for those who hadn't committed blood guilt. And Joab is neck deep in blood guilt. Okay? And so, uh, verse 30, Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands come out, but he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaniah brought the king word again, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. Okay? Joab's banking here. Remember, Joab is not a religious man. He's only religious when it's convenient to be so. He's banking on the fact that he's safe in the tabernacle, that nobody would kill a human being in the tabernacle. And Benaniah goes, I should ask. And so he goes to David and he asks, verse 31, the king replied to him, do as he has said, strike him down and bury him and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. Okay. Notice there, once again, Solomon has solid grounds to do so. We need to remember again that the Old Testament law lays out murder as being a significant sin that does not just take a life but pollutes a nation. Right? And so David's household, because it was under David's reign that this happened, bears the guilt of the innocents who were killed here. And Solomon sees, just like it says in Genesis 9, if a man kills, so he shall be killed, right? The, the guilt will be dealt with. Uh, it will be absolved, okay? Um, on the other hand, 
The Old Testament law is also clear uh, that if somebody is disqualified from calling sanctuary at the horns of the altar, that they are to be removed from the tabernacle first and then killed. They are to be brought out and killed is the actual rendering of that sentence. Now, those who criticize Solomon here, I think are doing it on a technicality, to be honest. But it is one more piece that has to be weighed in what's going on here. Um, verse 32, the Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, remember who had killed Joab's brother, uh, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and his descendants and for his house and for the throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck, down, struck him down and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in his place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Remember, both of these men stayed loyal to David and Solomon in the transition. Verse 36, then the king sent and summoned Shimei, Remember, this is the only leftover piece of unfinished business. Shimei, the one who cursed, that David said, you need to take care of him. But notice again, Solomon deals with him shrewdly. The king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And so he says, as long as you stay in my city, under my purview, you're safe. But don't leave. Okay? And so once again, just like we saw with Adonijah, he doesn't instantly take his life, but gives him an option to live. Adonijah's option was, if you do good, you will live. If you do bad, you will not. And here it's, if you stay in the city, you will live. But if you leave, you forfeit your life. Verse 38, Shimei said to the king, what you say is good, as my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days, but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, the son of Makkah, the king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And so what happens here? A couple of servants run away. They go to Gath, uh, which is one of the Philistine cities. Uh, and so he, he mounts up and he follows them out of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 41, And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, No, for certain that the day you go out and go any place, whatever, you shall die? And you said to me, Whatever, what you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. And so once again, we see him extend mercy, but, but there is a little bit of nuance here. Because interestingly enough, it's mentioned here only one border of Jerusalem that Shimei is not to cross, and that's Kidron. 
And the reason he's not to cross the Kidron Valley is because if you take that road, you can get back uh, to the land of Benjamin, and that's where the great threat is, right? That's where the other rule and reign is possible. Um, but he travels in a completely different direction. And so some suggest here uh, that although Shimei kept the letter of the law, he didn't obey the spirit and he deserved to die. Others suggest that Solomon takes this as an easy out to get rid of an enemy. Okay? But it's there. One of the reasons that makes this, uh, makes this tension is because structurally in the book, what we have just read and what we're about to read doesn't have to be in chronological order. We don't have to read the first two chapters as all happening and then Solomon asks for wisdom. In fact, what did we just read in the story of Shimei? That it's three years later when he dies, okay? But why is it told here? Because it's all one story. The transition from David to Solomon involved David's advice and we now see Solomon has kept it all. In fact, notice how the uh, chapter finishes here. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Okay. So structurally here, that closes out this first chapter, and we're not told if what follows is chronologically next, or now that the transition is over, we're delving deeper into the rain that may or may not overlap with that. Okay. So chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What does that mean? It means for political reasons, he took a wife who was the daughter of Pharaoh. Okay. Once again, standard practice in the ancient world not something Israelite kings are usually respected for doing. And this is his first move as king, okay? It's worth mentioning here that Solomon already has a ton of enemies because of David's rule under his thumb that are not just no longer a threat, so he's living in a time of peace, but are paying tribute to him and fueling his kingdom, okay? Egypt is not one of those, but Israel, as Solomon inherits it, is a terrible threat, and so Egypt is interested in a peace treaty. And so, so Solomon takes his first wife. Uh, some commentators suggest this is his, se- his second wife. We'll deal with that next week. Um, takes a wife as a political allegiance. Okay. Now, later it's going to tell us that in his old age, Solomon loved many foreign women and they turned his heart from the Lord. Once again, that may begin here. Okay. But nonetheless, he, uh, he does this And then notice here, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, the wall around Jerusalem. Now that's actually quite a long period of time, 13 years to build those two buildings, okay? Um, Excuse me, 20 years, seven for the temple and 13 on top of that for the palace. Um, The people, verse two, were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now that seems like a subtle early rebuke of Solomon because in spending so much time on the palace, he's delaying time on on uh, on the temple and in the meantime, Israel is continuing to worship in these unsanctioned places. Once again, notice uh, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings to the high places. Okay, the first criticism we get of Solomon here is that he not only let the high places remain, but that he also utilized them. Okay, now we're going to see that the high places become a primary place of idolatrous worship for the people of Israel. And the reason they are a primary place of idolatrous worship is that's what they were before Israel got here, 
okay? There's already altars set up here for foreign gods, okay? Um, and so here we get just a broad statement that Solomon really did love the Lord, but this one thing he didn't do. And then notice verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Now remember, this is not just a great high place, but it's also, uh, also where the tabernacle is. Solomon used to offer a thousand bird offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, that's a, that's a Semitic idiom. It means I don't know how to lead the people. Um, verse 8 and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people too many to not be numbered or counted for a multitude give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I might be discerned between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people and so God appears to Solomon and he says what can I give you and Solomon says I don't have what I need to do this job well. Give me discernment. Give me an understanding mind. Help me to know right from wrong. Give me wisdom so that I can rule your people rightly. Now, it's worth mentioning here, this isn't a trick question, okay? It's a really interesting place in the scriptures because the God who is sovereign asks an open-ended question to Solomon and says, what do you want? And we need to recognize, even though Solomon's answer is a good answer, it's not necessarily the only answer, okay? Nor would, um, you know, his hand been slapped before he got in the cookie jar if he had asked for something else. But we also need to recognize that doesn't mean that it's the best answer, okay? We're, we're not told, but this is what plays out. Solomon, at, as a positive, knows his great need and humbly asks that God would give him what he needs to govern his people well. Now, once again, the question is, can we take everything we've read in the book and set it aside as being the childish, wrong decisions of Solomon? And it would be a pretty good reading to read it that way, except for the fact that we're going to see Solomon continue to live in some of those self-same ways, okay? And so it's hard to draw up this book as being um, in three parts, okay? Uh, Solomon before wisdom, Solomon in wisdom, and then old man, idolatrous Solomon. It's intermixed. Things are interwoven. You know, marrying foreign women already began before this happens. But nonetheless, we need to recognize God's stamp of approval on this request. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like, uh, like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Notice the statement of uniqueness there. He says that you are going to be a king like no other king in wisdom, not just in your day and age, but in the annals of history. Okay, verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, 
both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, and your father David has walked, then I will lengthen your days. Remember, those are the three things. He, he said, you could have asked for me to take your enemies' lives. You could have asked for riches. You could have asked for long life. And here he says, on top of the wisdom, I'm going to give you the things you didn't ask for. And he lays them all out. But notice he makes the last one, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, I will lengthen your days. Now, David doesn't actually, excuse me, Solomon doesn't actually attain to the age of his father. He dies at the age of 60. And it's probably because he does not keep uh, walking in the ways. But notice verse 15, Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Okay. And so he celebrates here in gratitude to God, knowing that, uh, that what God has promised will come to pass. And then we get a, um, a test of Solomon's wisdom, a demonstration of it, if you will. Uh, verse 16, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, the woman also gave birth, and they, we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, and only two were in the house. Okay, so notice what's going on here. There's two pregnant prostitutes living together. They deliver three days apart, so they both have brand new infant babies, and they're the only ones in their home. Verse 20, and she arose, verse 19, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. Okay, it's a pretty simple plot here. Uh, one mother accidentally kills her baby, and so before the other one awakes, she swaps babies. But when the other one awakes, verse 21, when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, no, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Now, as we've seen before here, the king handles the hardest of cases, the ones that the elders are not capable of figuring out, escalate up, just like we have the Supreme Court, to the supreme decision of Solomon. But notice what is completely lacking here, evidence. It's just two women's presentation of what happened, okay? There's no genetic testing. There's no way to determine this except the word. And so here is what Solomon does, verse 23. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, oh, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. And so it really is, I mean, I'm assuming most of us have heard this story before. You don't even have to be a Christian to encounter this. In fact, I was recently watching a television show that played this exact situation out. Okay? It's become familiar to us, almost proverbial. But it's still worth sitting with it for a second. He threatens the life of the living child to test the love of each mother. 
knowing that the one who, whose child is still alive would be unwilling to see it die even if she lost it forever. Whereas the other one is relatively callous. Her baby is already dead. It's in some way a comfort to her that she would lose a baby as well. But there's something really striking in this narrative, and maybe you've never noticed it before. Look at what it says in verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king. Do you know what that doesn't tell us? It doesn't tell us which of the women was, was telling the truth. We don't know if the woman who brought the story was telling the truth or the woman who said, no, it's a lie, was telling the truth. All we know is the one who the baby really belonged to, she's the one who spoke up. It gets past the story. It gets past the narrative. Okay? In fact, we're kind of left confounded by this because we don't know the answer. We don't know which story is true. All we know is the wisdom of Solomon uh, that reunites this woman and her living child. And so, verse 27, the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman. Uh, and to be clear here, that's a convenient translation, but the word first isn't there. That would give away the plot, but that's not what it says. It says, give the child to the woman, is all it says there. Um, Give the living child to the woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Right? Despite the lack of evidence, despite the lack of witnesses, justice is still done because of David's wisdom. Now we start to get into the consequences of his wisdom. And the first thing I want you to notice here is even though David, or Solomon is the wisest man alive... He doesn't do it alone, okay? Wisdom means having help. Just right out the gate, the first thing we see here, chapter 4, verse 1, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. And the second thing I want to point out is not only does he appoint a bunch of leaders to do this with him, but also I want you to notice that we've seen lists like this before. We twice got a record of David's cabinet, and so what's interesting is when we compare Solomon's cabinet, it's a lot bigger. Okay, because Solomon's government is a lot bigger. And so whereas David's cabinet was basically his war generals, his priest, his prophet, and two other people, here we have twice as many names and some of them in brand new roles that we've not read about before. So notice here, uh, these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Eliareph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Okay, uh, they did all the writing, the royal writing. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elud, was the recorder. So here we have on the books a historian, right? And so it's going to mention sometimes this information was recorded in the annals of Solomon. This is his writings, okay? They're the court records. Um, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. We've already met him. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now that is interesting. Zadok and Abiathar were priests in the cabinet. Why is that interesting? Because we just read he sent Abiathar home, okay? So here's where that chronology becomes important. Did this record Abiathar as being priest and he eventually sent him home? Or did he repent of that and bring Abiathar back in? Now, I don't actually think that's a very good case. But it is a question that has to be answered here because we find him in the cabinet. Okay, verse 5, Azariah the son of Nathan was over the officers. Zabad the son of Nathan was the priest and king's friend. A friend of the king is not anything less than an official role. It's not just that they were real close buds. It's an actual position in the cabinet. Okay, verse 6. 
Abishar was in charge of the palace. Notice that he needs someone just to take care of the palace itself because when it's built, it's really big and there's a lot of people who work there. Um, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Now, we haven't met the forced labor yet, but this is going to be uh, people on rotation from all the tribes of Israel who are spending three months out of the year building these big building projects of Israel. Initially, Solomon uses them for the temple, and then he keeps them on for the building of his palace and the building of his uh, place to keep his horses and the meta, uh, what is that called? It's not the Mado. Uh, anyways, a bunch of places. And through it, he greatly beautifies Israel. But it's way beyond the stipulations of the original contract. By the time Solomon is done, the people are so tired of building stuff and the heavy taxes, they beg Solomon's son to ease up. Okay. Um, but it's worth pointing out that despite that, in fact, we'll see how the taxes work here in verse 7 before we get to the despite. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. So he divides the land up into 12 groups. Interestingly enough, it's not exactly the 12 tribes, but it is 12 sections, and it includes the enemy territory like the Philistines that are under Solomon's thumb. Okay, They're bigger than this, but each one has to require, uh, provide a month's worth of provision for the government, basically. That's how the tax system works under Solomon. Okay, And so here we meet them, verse 8. These were their names, Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Mechaz, Shalibim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elimbeth-Hanan, uh, Ben Hesed and Aruboth, to him belong Soka and all the land of Hefer. Ben Abinadab in all of Naphathdor, and he had Tapha, the daughter of Solomon, as a wife. Bena, the son of Elihud, in Tanak, Megiddo, and all Beth Shean that's beside Zathrin below Jezreel, and from Beth Shean to Abelmola, as far as the other side of Jokmium. Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. He had the regions of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. And Dimadab, Ahinadab, the son of Edo, in Mahanaim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he had taken Basmath, uh, the daughter of uh, Solomon, as wife. Bena, the son of Hushai, and Asher in Beloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Pura, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Ella, in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og of Bashan, and there was one governor who was over the land. In other words, all of these 12 report to one official um, above that. But uh, what we need to recognize, though, even though the taxes were heavy and the forced labor was extensive, Israel prospered, and so they didn't really mind. Okay, and that's what we read next, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, meaning the population was booming. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is the largest um, territory of the promised land God gave to Israel, Israel ever has under its control. Okay. Um, verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelle, and roebucks and fatted fowl. Let me remind you again, that's one day, okay? And so his palace table is abundant, and there's lots of people eating at it. Um, 
Verse 24, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. Okay, and so peace and feasting go hand in hand. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Remember, that's basically from the extreme north all the way to the extreme south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Now remember, that peace is inherited peace. That's because David has basically conquered everything and left the kingdom in Solomon's hands. And so Solomon is not a, uh, a smart general like his father was. He's a wise manager, a wise governor. Okay? Uh, however, notice here in verse 26, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariot and 12,000 horsemen. Now, here's why that's problematic. Because back in the book of Deuteronomy, it lays out stipulations for kings, and there's basically three do-nots. Do not multiply wives, do not multiply wealth, and do not multiply horses, with the addition of don't return to Egypt where the best horses were to get horses from there. Okay? And so here we see Solomon. Now remember his wealth, that's God's gift to him. It was promised to him. But the horses, he's going right against the command. And you might go, yeah, but Deuteronomy is an old and dry book. Would Solomon know that? Yes, he would. Because Deuteronomy also stipulates that every year the king was to write by hand the whole law out for himself and to read it daily. Okay? And so, again, we see here him going beyond what he should. We see the seeds of what's going to come out of his life. Uh, nonetheless, it is a striking sign of wealth here. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his, horse, uh, for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions to King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley and also straw for the horses and swift street steeds they brought to the uh, place where it was required, each according to his duty. So once again, who's feeding all of these horses? Israel, on monthly rotations, okay? This is a big government with high overhead, okay? And we do some, see some tremendous benefit in that, okay? Because of that, Israel as a whole prospers. And it's going to say in a few chapters that in those days, silver was as common as stones, in Israel, okay? Uh, everybody is experiencing the abundance under Solomon. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there is also an extensive amount of, of privilege, and with that privilege becomes, you know, loosening up of the rules that's going to put Solomon eventually in a dangerous position. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and a breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. Now, those are really significant historical references because when we look for wisdom literature outside of the Bible, those are the two places we find it. The wisdom literature of Babylon and the wisdom literature of Egypt. The Proverbs of Babylon and the Proverbs of Egypt. But here it says that Solomon surpassed all of their wisest men. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman, Calcol and uh, Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding of na nations. Okay, so he, he has a international reputation now as being wise. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, okay? We have many of those recorded for us in the book of Proverbs. His songs were 1,005, 
and it's very possible that one of those is what we know as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Uh, the reason it's called the Song of Songs is because it's the greatest of all his songs. That's what the title means, okay? He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. Okay, and so he studied botany and understood plants. And notice there, it's from the biggest to the smallest. Okay, so trees, uh, the cedars of Lebanon are constantly a picture of the biggest thing you can find in Israel, but even down to the hyssop that grows in the wall, right? Just out of a crack in the wall. Uh, He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, as we close tonight, why am I okay with the tension of Solomon? The reason I'm okay with this is because God has made this promise that David's son will sit on his throne. And it has both a semi-fulfillment in Solomon and then a clear falling short in Solomon. When we look for uh, the wise descendant of David who will rule and reign, we can't stop with Solomon. Solomon starts well, but he falls short. He, he, he looks like he's going to fill the shoes of God's promises, but he doesn't. And we're going to see this over and over again. In fact, here's a really interesting thing about the story the Bible tells. Okay? This is the high point of Israel's history. After Solomon, it's all downhill. Okay? What's interesting is the prophets, they don't seem to get the memo. And so their prediction of what's coming in Israel continues to go up and up and up, even as Israel continues to go in decline over and over again, okay? Because the fulfillment was never meant to be found in Solomon. This is only a picture, a shadow of what's to come. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, we find, as Jesus says, one greater than Solomon, right? Speaking of himself. And as Paul says, in Jesus we find all wisdom and understanding. Okay? And so I'm okay with the tension of Solomon, and I don't really feel the need to reconcile his life because we're not called to follow Solomon. We're called to follow Jesus. And we recognize that Solomon is not just a personification of the one who would come, but he's a sinner who needs the one who would come. And so we can live with this tension, and we can draw application from it as we can Um, But here we're set up uh, for what happens next. And so we find Solomon replacing David in fulfillment of the promises that David had been given. And we'll stop there for the night. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so encouraged by where we see your hand in this story tonight, Lord. There's no getting around how gracious you are, that even to a man like David you made such great and precious promises And just like Solomon and so many who follow him who will benefit from David's faithfulness and not their own. Lord, that's so much of our story and yet you've been gracious with us and we thank you for that. We also see, God, that you desire to give us what we need. James says that we have not because we ask not or or we ask with wrong motives to spend it on our evil desires. And we see here Solomon as a counterexample who not only asks, but he asks for what he needs, and he gets it. I pray, Lord, that we would be the same, that we would come before you humbly and ask for what we need. In fact, James goes on and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give give us the wisdom we need for our place.
for our job, for the role and the calling and the vocation that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that it would be the wisdom from above and not the wisdom from below, that it wouldn't help us to get ahead in the world, Lord, but it would help us to see with your eyes and walk in your footsteps. And we thank you for your word tonight, and we ask that you continue to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.